Hi, and welcome to the Bet and Goods podcast. Today, I'm interviewing Srivatsam Prakash, who is the host of the Market Champions podcast. He's an incoming freshman at the U- University of Toronto this year, and right now works at Simplify ETFs. Nice to have you, Srivatsam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, what made you start your podcast? So I guess that's sort of a confluence of different things, uh, I guess. I've always been interested in finance, the way the world works, and business ever since I was young. And, you know, um, so when I started it, like, two years ago, uh, I started it in Jan 2019. Um, so, um, so when I started in Jan 2019, it was more like a general business-related podcast. So, you know, there's some investing content on it. Uh, but otherwise, there was also like you know stuff about like you know just doing general business, entrepreneurship, marketing, you know, social media, so on and so forth. So pretty much everything related to business was originally called the Elite Investing Show. The name came off my username, which was Elite Investor, and still is Elite Investor. Um, and then after that, uh, I guess I think it was towards the end of 2019. Uh, so then, so I, I changed the name to. Um, market champions from the elite investing show because I wanted to focus on, you know, markets, economics and finance and, you know, sort of stay away from pretty much the other forms of business. And, you know, that would be, uh, you know, that, that was sort of my, I mean, my end goal was to ensure that, you know, the podcast was related to investing. And also I wanted to, you know, professionally be an investor. So I thought, you know, it would be a lot better if the podcast was entirely dedicated to investing as opposed to, um, I guess, general business. And that's, that's, that's sort of why I got started. And, uh, you know, what inspired me to start was, um, there's this guy on Instagram who had his own podcast and, you know, he just go around, speak to people he would get. And, you know, in return for speaking, he pretty much get, you know, free shout outs and was able to grow just, you know, was able to grow. He was able to get free information. He was able to get good content. And um, so you know, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk who said that, you know, podca- podcasting in a way is sort of a triple arbitrage. So number one, you get to grow your audience because, you know, your guest who's probably bigger than you is probably going to shout it out and, you know, he's going to retweet, reshare, et cetera. That's one thing. And the second thing is you've got uh, a piece of content, which is a podcast. And then apart from that, you know, if you have a YouTube channel or if you have, you know, an Instagram page, you know, you, you have the ability to sort of chop up know uh, the video uh, part of your interview and then you know you're able to post that as sort of you're able to sort of chop it up and then post that as you know content uh, separately so you know you've got so in a sense you've got um, a triple arbitrage right there so you know you know, and you know you pretty much do very little work because you, you just sit there and ask people questions and mm-hmm. you know that's that's it's pretty easy to do it's not it's not very difficult so in a sense it's like a really good way to get exposure. It's also a really good way to grow your audience. Also a great player. It's also a great way to network. Uh, you know, you're, uh, so if you start having some rather, uh, some larger guests on, uh, you have the ability to not only make friends, but also um, connections that can help you later on in life. And I guess the last thing there was um, the fact that I started when I was 14. Um, so, you know, that was sort of a big selling point. So, you know, I was able to sell the fact that you know look I'm 14 or I'm 15 or I'm 16 and you know here I am doing this podcast and I want you to have you on and you know that was something that helped uh, you know bring on guests early on and you know 
from there, you know, somehow I've been able to keep putting out one a week at least. And here we are. <laughs> What's the most surprising thing about the podcast? I think it's, uh, I mean, one thing is um, I've uh, managed to stay pretty consistent, but in generally, uh, like generally speaking, it's pretty hard to be consistent because number one, you have to keep asking guests and, you know, there's also a chance that, you know, the guest either never gets back to you or, you know, you get, or they decline the opportunity to be on your podcast. And, you know, that's, so in general, just, you know, consistently putting out a podcast every week is pretty difficult. Uh, and, you know, the, the surprising thing was, you know, uh, because once you get going, you know, you're able to talk to pretty much anyone and everyone. Uh, so that's sort of this, that's fortunately the situation I'm in right now. So, um so 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 the surprising thing is you know the people who you generally look up to um you know you have the opportunity to speak with them and uh also uh the other surprising thing is you know the amount of opportunity that can come you know by just having the podcast you know as your resume and you know um i've managed to get an internship just through the podcast and twitter and you know that's that sort of shows the power of social media especially you know in the modern digital age okay you tweet a lot. You frequently post threads. What's your process like when you start from start of an idea to thread on the internet? So usually, um, the so usually the idea comes either you know from me thinking about something or you know me being curious about something, and uh, or you know it could be you know someone on Twitter you know just asking me you know do can you do a thread on you know so and so and. Um, so that's, so that's sort of how I get the idea. And, you know, sometimes it is hard to find ideas. Then, you know, uh, um, so a lot of what I do on those threads is usually either document history or, you know, some sort of bubble or some sort of, you know, uh, market event, what happened, how it happened, you know, why this happened, so on. And, or, you know, it tends to be putting forth an argument. And, you know, one thing that I did that sort of had a relative amount of success was, um, I put out a thread on you know, why the gold standard and Bitcoin, you know, the, you know, they're not they're not good monetary systems as opposed to you know the fiat standard, which is what I support. And um, so, uh, so you know, that's how I get that's how I get the ideas. A lot of you know, a lot of the research is done you know, while writing the thread. So you know, I have uh, so because that's where because when you start writing stuff, you know, you start asking questions and you start you know thinking about stuff that you you didn't think about earlier. And you know, that's sort of the benefit of writing. And you know, I know you've got a Substack as well, and you've probably seen the same. So um, when you so when you actually write down your thoughts, it it forces you to think through things that you probably would not have thought of if you weren't actually writing it. So that's, that's so that's, that's, so that's sort of the process of writing the thread. So, you know, when you get an idea, either, you know, just by reading or, you know, from someone who asked you to write a thread on a particular topic. And then after, you know, either I know stuff about the topics, for example, I, I knew like, you know, what the downsides of the gold standard was. Um, and, uh, um, or, you know, you have to sit down, read books, or you have to read articles and so on on the web so that you're able to get an idea of what exactly you're trying to write. And then number, the, and then, you know, number three, uh, it takes about half an hour to 45 minutes to post a thread. And, you know, uh, as, we're, as we were speaking off the record, um, it is criminal that Twitter doesn't allow you to save threads on the app. And, you know, that would be extremely beneficial because then you'll be able to write those threads, you know, whenever you find the time, as opposed to, you know, just writing it right before you post it. So, okay. Your thread on why a gold standard is bad got you a lot of attention. So, why is a gold standard bad? 
So uh, I'd say that the major reason is because a gold standard is supposed to promote financial stability, but what ends up happening is it's, it promotes financial instability. And uh, the reason I say that is when the, uh, so um, I sort of subscribe to some of uh, some Keynesian ideas and, you know, what you're able to see is that, you know, aggregate demand tends to, de- uh, tends to decline uh, during recession. So in order to push aggregate demand back up, you know, it's useful to have a currency that's, uh, that you're able to sort of print and, you know, you're able to expand the money supply. And then the other thing is that during uh, the goal, uh, during uh, the gold standard was a major cause of, uh, you know, the great depression. And, you know, that sort of stops the government from intervening, um, and you know, expanding aggregate demand when uh, things start to uh, things start to get bad. And I think you know that's that's sort of the major thing a fiat a fiat system allows. And the other thing is, I know a gold standard is basically it's completely inelastic, while a fiat standard is elastic. And what I mean by that is, you know, you're able to ensure you get you're able to control the amount of credit in the economy if you have you know a proper fiat system, and you know you have. Uh, the government in uh, or the Federal Reserve in control of where of where interest rates are, and uh, so so it's sort of a, so it's sort of like uh, the gold standard remains inelastic because you know, you're not able to change the quantity of money uh, depending on what economic conditions are, which I think is a very useful part of you know what the what the fiat standard offers. Okay, but doesn't the gold standard credibly constrain policymakers to not inflate the currency? Isn't that a major advantage in fact you've seen zero hyper inflations under gold standard well i I mean uh, that's that's partly true and uh i mean definitely for uh fiat the the fiat standard does run a risk of you know having higher rates of inflation and you know you you have seen you know governments throughout history print money and increase uh you know the money supply drastically and um well, I do agree with that. What I, what I don't agree with is, you know, what I, what I at least hope for is, you know, the government as a whole is relatively, um, is relatively, you know, sensible in terms of you know, how much it controls the quantity of money by. And uh, I mean, I agree that, you know, that is a risk of what the fiat system offers. But um, on the contrary, you know, you see the gold standard lead to several deflationary depressions. And, um you're, you're able to see that before 1971 and especially during 1890 to 1914, number one, recessions are very common. And, you know, the business impact of these recessions and the impact on, for example, industrial production was, you know, significantly higher. And um, the, inel- the inelasticity of, of the money supply, for example, was a major cause of the Great Depression. And, you know, I, I think that I think that, you know, the gold standard, for example, would have caused a great depression during the great financial crisis as well if, you know, if we had a gold standard as opposed to a fiat system. And so, and so overall, uh, what you, what you do see is, uh, you know, these quantitative easing policies, they don't cause hyperinflation, or at least they haven't caused hyperinflation. And, you know, you've seen Japan, in Japan as well, they haven't caused hyper, hyperinflation, they haven't caused it in the US or in uh, you know, the UK or in the, or in the European Union. So while I agree that there is a risk of hyperinflation, I think that at least at the moment, governments across the world are sensible enough to you know, not drastically increase the money supply. Okay. Uh, you also had a thread on how the money supply really works and how QE isn't actually increasing the money supply. Could you explain that? So uh, I believe there's sort of 
so so the way uh, the Federal Reserve likes to think about money is sort of there's endogenous money and there's exogenous money. And uh, I at the moment, I can't remember which term goes for which, but if I remember correctly, endogenous money is money that is created by, um, so by banks lending versus yeah. exogenous money, which is created by the Federal Reserve quote unquote printing. So what QE actually does is it's not, you know, money printer goes brewer, which, uh, you know, I think is a, which I think is a silly meme, but um, so, so, uh, so the QE is basically an asset swap. Uh, so the Federal Reserve buys, you know, U.S. treasuries, and then in exchange, it gives bank reserves, which are, you know, pretty much bank deposits at the Federal Reserve. And, uh, you know, for, quote unquote, the real money supply to go up, um, banks have to lend. And, um, and so, you know, that, uh, so that's what QE intends to do. So it sort of increases the amount of reserves so that, you know, it is, uh, so banks are more comfortable actually lending money, but, you know, we haven't seen too, we haven't seen too much lending. And uh, there's also, and then the other thing that, you know, goes with this that, you know, a lot of people fail to understand is a, an increase in lending does not necessarily equal, or, uh, or, you know, an increase in the quote unquote real money supply does not, you know, always correlate with an increase in inflation. And, you know, uh, that, that, that's not always true. That's not, that is sometimes true for sure, but you know, it's not always true. And um, so number one, QE is not money printer course, but it's an asset swap where the Federal Reserve swaps, uh, uh, gives the banks um, a, uh, gives the banks a bank, well, uh, what is a bank reserve, which is a deposit the bank has with, at the Federal Reserve and in exchange, the Federal Reserve gets a US treasury. And uh, you know, it's almost just an accounting transaction right there. So, you know, there is, uh, so, you know, it's not, you know, the Federal Reserve actually printing money. It's just an asset swap. And unless banks lend against those reserves, you know, you know, you can't actually, so you can't just take these reserves and go and buy bread, for example, right? You have to, uh, for, the, for the bank reserves to sort of spill over into the real economy, these banks have to lend. And the third thing that I think, you know, a lot of the deflationary camp gets wrong is lending all uh, does not necessarily correlate with inflation, you know, there's there's probably other there's other variables that do a lot better, but you know, it's a lending may or may not correlate. You know, there there are times it has, there are times it hasn't, but overall, you know, lending is what actually increases the real money supply. What one thing do most people besides this, uh, besides the deflation, the deflationary Fed thing, do most people get wrong about macro e- economics? So I'd probably say. The most important thing that you know people get wrong is um, that's a good question. Uh, so uh, I guess the most important thing that people get wrong is uh, you know the money supply or you know whatever the money aggregates are. You know they're not necessarily a good uh, indicator of what the what, what number one the real money supply is and number two, I you know what. Um, uh, you know, what the value of the dollar is doing. So for example, you know, the M1 money supply actually, uh, you know, there was a, there were other people on Twitter who were busy saying that, you know, oh my God, the M1 money supply has gone up by $15 trillion or something. And in reality, I know 11 trillion of that increase was uh, simply an accounting shift, um, which, which, re- which classified savings accounts as checking accounts. And the reason that happened was because policymakers decided to remove uh, you know, the cap on the number of withdrawals that could happen from savings accounts. So, you know, savings accounts tend to be more long-term checking accounts tend to be more short-term, but then, you know, uh, you know, to help people out during the pandemic, you know, policymakers decided to, you know, remove the cap on the number of withdrawals from savings accounts. And therefore, you know, it was classified as M1. So, but all you see there is it's an accounting shift. It's, you know, there are, 
it's not like, you know, there's a change in the money supply. It's just that, you know, there's something else that's being accounted for as money that was not previously. And, you know, um, uh, and, you know, uh, which makes the M1, uh, you know, a, a, a little bit shaky as a measure of, you know, what the money supply is. And the other thing is that, you know, the M2 money supply, the Fed's balance sheet, you know, that does not re represent what, um, you know, what the, what the dollar is doing and what, uh, whether the dollar is being quote unquote debased or devalued. And, you know, you see a lot of these people, uh, you know, divide stuff by the Fed's balance sheet. And then, you know, they, and then the reason they do that is at least like uh, they claim that, um, the Fed's balance sheet is a great denominator because it measures, you know, the devaluation of what the U.S. dollar is, and I think that's just wrong because, you know, the the Federal Reserve, uh, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet you know, is a poor measure of pretty much anything, and you know, defining stuff by the Fed's balance sheet doesn't show anything. Um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything either because the Fed's balance sheet is number one a horrible measure of the money supply, and then number two, uh, you know, it doesn't show inflation either uh, because. You know, if you just think about it very simply, you know, just mathematically, you know, the Fed's balance sheet has gone up at about 8% a year uh, since 2007-08. And uh, the GDP growth has been 4% a year. So in that sense, you know, uh, if you're saying that the Fed's balance sheet represents inflation, then, you know, you would also be arguing that we're seeing negative, you know, 4% real growth uh, over uh, you know, the la over the last decade or so. And, you know, that's just wrong because, you know, we saw super low, uh, you know, unemployment, we saw super low inflation. And, you know, even if the inflation numbers are a little bit understated, still, um, we did not see, you know, negative 4% real growth every single year. So I just think, uh, I just think number one, people are people using these monetary aggregates as measure of the money supply. I think that's wrong. And then number two, um, uh, I think that, you know, these monetary aggregates are very poor measures of what uh, uh, of what the what the U.S. dollar is worth? So, okay, that's a that's a that's a fair point. People get dogmatic about these things. Everyone gets really angry about um about how you know the Fed's debasing the currency, or even on the opposite side, you know these people are, are completely wrong. What what do you think of the importance of keeping your mind open when dealing with issues like this? You know, one thing that's obviously really important when you're an investor or a trader is, you know, you have to keep your mind open to other possibilities and you have to, you know, never get um, married to one view or to one stock. And, you know, uh, I think it was uh, Peter Brandt, who is a, you know, legendary trader. Uh, he said that, um, uh, he said that um, uh, he's a, you should have strong opinions that are weakly held. And I think that's, that's sort of how, you know, people should approach investing. You know, you should have, strong opinions, uh, you know, you should have these opinions that, you know, you that you have some conviction on, but you should not get married to them. You should, you should, you know, you should be, uh, you know, willing to change your mind. And, you know, George Soros, he will, what he did was, you know, he would do just enough research to arrive at a decision of whether to make a trade or not. And, you know, uh, a lot of people do a lot of intensive, you know, uh, sit down and they read fundamentals and then they read seeking alpha articles and then they go through every single SEC filing over the last 10 years. And, um, they read all the research reports and so on. But, you know, what George Soros argued was that, uh, you know, that gets you married to a view and, you know, that gets you married uh, to to that stock or to that investment or that trade. And how Soros would avoid that is, you know, he would do just enough research and, uh, you know, uh, he, he himself has called himself, uh, he himself has, you know, called uh, himself lazy uh, based on the amount of analysis that he did. So I think 
that's the heading I think yeah so you have to you know always have an open mind you always have to be ready to change your opinion and you know I'll give you a sort of a real life example so Stan Druckenmiller was long in uh, right before what was long uh, you know the the week before uh, you know the, the week before I think it was Black Monday in October 1987 and um, so so uh, uh, and uh so uh, after close, uh, after market close, uh, after the market close on Friday, uh, George Soros walked into Stan Druckenmiller's office and, you know, showed him a study that was done by Paul Tudor Jones. And, you know, Paul Tudor Jones argued that, you know, we would see a big, you know, we would see a big move lower and we would see a big collapse in terms of, um, in terms of the stock market. The stock market was destined for a massive move lower. And, you know, so, and, you know, Stan Druckenmiller, you know, in that instant, he saw that study, he realized that his long position was wrong and he had to go short. And then on Black Monday, that actually in the morning, uh, the, uh, the first half an hour or one hour or so, you know, it was actually pretty flat and, you know, the market didn't move much. And, you know, uh, Stan Druckenmiller used that, you know, moment to switch his position from long to short. And, um, so, so, you know, he had an open mind. He was able to switch his position from long to short. And, you know, I think that's, a, that's sort of a great example of what happens when you keep an open mind while, when investing. On one hand, there's George Soros, who says that too much analysis is a waste of time. On the other hand, there's one Buffett who reads a lot and still keeps an open mind. But these people both have made a lot of money and Buffett with his unique capital structure has, has made a lot more money. So what's your take on that? Well, I mean, uh, George Soros, I mean, George Soros has, he has made like a significant amount of money. So, you know, he, he's made what, 40 billion or so during his career. He's given away like 32 billion through his Open Society Foundation Fund and, uh, and again, you know, investing is about finding, you know, what works for you. And uh, there's no like correct way to invest or there's no correct way to trade. And, you know, people use different things and they've all been successful with different techniques. And, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to what number one you're going to be comfortable with. And, you know, second thing, you know, if I was worth 40 billion and, you know, someone else was worth 87 billion, I'm not going to be complaining, right? <laughs> it, it depends on your on the on the um, drive you have to beat everybody else but yes i would not be complaining either yes but okay fine uh, you what works for you though what's what's your take on, on this so uh i think that one thing that jim rogers has said and another guy named jim leitner who i think is one of the greatest investors of all time uh, has said is um Number one, you have to. Uh, number one, you have to be able to take opportunities regardless of where they come. So, uh, so that so that's sort of my approach, um, because you know you could sort of dedicate yourself to investing in say you know small cap, U.S. equities, long only fund. But then the greatest trade in the world could be you know shorting the Japanese yen or it could be shorting the South Korean housing market or something like that. And uh, you won't have the opportunity to take it because, you know, you decided to restrict yourself to just trading or just investing in, uh, you know, small cap U.S. equity companies. And uh, I think that's sort of a major impediment because, you know, that stops you from taking opportunities elsewhere. And uh, the one thing that I do rely a lot on is, uh, you know, fundamentals and I guess macro and sentiment. So I think those three things are super important. And uh, I think that 
that's a, that's sort of my approach. And, you know, a lot of what I do is just sit down, read 10 Ks and, you know, how your company is. That's, that's sort of my bread and butter at the moment. And, you know, I, I, and, you know, at the moment, if you see my Twitter, button, I'm saying that, you know, I'm learning macro and coding and, you know, I've, uh, I've never actually traded, you know, quote unquote macro positions. And I've, um, and, and, you know, uh, and, you know, I think that overall, you know, statistics as well is like really is like super useful when it comes to actually trading. And yeah, so to me, sort of my approach would be a combination of, uh, you know, just sitting down, reading, right, reading reports, reading, um, knowing as much as you have to know in order to be in order to get the conviction to make a decision and then, you know, hopefully having stuff that, and hopefully having another market move in your favor, because in an, I guess to an extent, you know, technicals are useful in that, uh, in that aspect. And I try to avoid, you know, patterns and so on as much as possible. But then, you know, there, there are many studies that have shown, that have shown like the power of, you know, what is called breakouts. And, you know, there's people like Cliff Astis who have used momentum and, uh, you know, trend following as a strategy, uh, in order to take advantage of it, you know, they've done a lot of research on the momentum factor. So I think that, so I think that to some of my approach is probably just value investing, but then also, you know, keeping an open mind to trades that may happen in other markets. So that's, 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 that's what investing is to me. You take a broad tent of approaches and you say there are many right ways to do it, but is there a wrong way to invest is there something that historically has shown to be incredibly uh, a poor idea in terms of preserving your money well i mean uh if you have so uh, if, uh i mean you could uh, well one is to be what they call an austrian investor and you know i like to occasionally take shots at austrian economists on twitter and uh so i think that you know if your only investment is you know you're going to be long gold you know i think you're going to be waiting a very long time to get wealthy um so I think that I think that there are many approaches that work. And of course, there are many approaches that don't. And one of them is definitely just, you know, being long gold and precious metals because and hoping for, you know, some sort of inflation. Because number one, there's always someone who's bearish on the market. And uh, that's, that's why I try to avoid, you know, I try to avoid um, all these bearish stakes. And, you know, the other thing is, I think there's a quote that goes, you know, pessimists sound smart, but optimists make money. And uh that's sort of, and, and you know, that's sort of the wrong approach to be, you know, it, it's wrong to be in a way, you know, always just long precious metals and stock, short the market and short, you know, stock markets and, you know, the bond market as well. So I think, uh, so I think that, you know, those are the wrong approaches, but then, you know, there's people who've made money, you know, just trading chart patterns and there's people who've, uh, uh, you know, like Peter Brand, you know, he's, he's a market wizard and, you know, he's used a lot of technical analysis and he's done really, really well for himself. So, you know, those are, so, you know, there's different approaches that where it comes to what works for you. And uh, of course there's approaches that don't, and you know, you have to be sensible about that. If somebody gave you $10 million and said, here you go, you have to convert it into a hundred X in the next 20 years. How do you do it? Say that again, 10 million if into $10 million, hundred X 20 years. All, all on uh, Bitcoin, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I I knew it. That's... You were a secret Bitcoiner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I I I mean, you know, there there there's really like no way to actually get rich quick, and you know, that's sort of something that people have to come to terms with. Um, you know, there there are many instruments that supposedly offer a hundred x, and you know, there's always like one or two people who seem to you know 
be the lucky ones and uh, you know, convert, uh, you know, the, they put their life savings into, you know, one out of the money option on a stock. And then um, it sort of, it sort of somehow just becomes um, 10X or a hundred X, you know, just, to, just like that. And, you know, they had, they have like a $50,000 in life savings and then they just put it in and all of a sudden, you know, they've got, you know, $50 million and, it's uh, there's always someone who's lucky who ends up getting rich quick, but you know that's not feasible for most of us. So yeah. Okay, uh, you're a fan of Jim Chanos, the short seller. What have you yeah. learned from reading about him? I think the one thing that you have you can learn from um, from Jim Chanos is that uh, you know you have to you have to always. Um, Sort of, you you have to always uh, you know sit down, go through the final, go through the financial footnotes, and you know you can never depend on you know the auditor. And you know, that's what that's sort of what you learn from all the short sellers in general that you have to go through the footnotes of the accounting statements and figure out you know what the what it means, what they actually do. And you know if you, you know, for example, um, uh, you know he was a, he he you know, he's famous for shorting Enron, and you know Enron had. And runs footnotes where you know really really difficult to understand and to read. And you know even Warren Buffett has said that you know he he still to this day cannot understand what the Enron footnotes were saying. And um, so and you know a lot of people went all into Enron. And you know Enron was considered sort of a blue chip back in the day in the 1990s. And you now a lot of these dot com stocks, you know, uh, you know uh, you know were were fraudulent. And you had to sit down and go through you know the financial statements, read the footnotes, and. So that's so that's what so that's sort of the major thing that you learn from Enron uh, that uh, that you learn from uh, you know Jim Chino. So you know you know so even though you know these people have big name auditors, you know, or they may have you know relations with uh, you know the government. You know, if I'm not wrong, Wirecard had some sort of relation with the German government, if I remember correctly, and don't quote me on it. But uh, you know, you, you cannot just simply use that and say you know therefore you know all the foot all the all the you know the company has to be. No, highly ethical. It has to be clean and it has to be transparent. No, that, that's not true, right? You have to sit down. You have to sit down and do the work. So, yeah, that's a that's a that's a fair point. Uh, what do most people get wrong about the Chinese stock bubble of twenty fifteen to sixteen? I think that one interesting thing is sort of the impact of flows on the uh, on the bubble. And uh, so, if you so if you see my thread that I did on. Um, on uh, on the Chinese stock bubble. Uh, so one thing that you see is that, you know, these stocks go up, limit up, and they have no volume. And the reason that happens is, you know, in a way it sort of like flows into the into the stock. And that's, that's sort of what, uh, you know, Michael Green has talked about as well. You know, the number of limits, a limit up, a limit up stocks was also going up. And, um, the stocks had no volume. And uh, so, you know, it was sort of a retail fuel frenzy because uh, 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 that is is sort of like the most, in a way that is sort of the most bubbly kind of example, because uh, when you you think of a bubble, you know, you think of, you know, people who've got no idea making lots of money and uh, you've got also the government backing it up with stupid policies. So that's, that's, that's sort of what we saw in China there. And, you know, um, 
And, you know, and, you know, the thing that, you know, most people fail to realize during the bubble was that, you know, once the stocks actually started to trade again, so once the volume, you know, was no, was no longer zero, once it stopped going, you know, just limit up, limit up, limit up, you know, it would have to collapse and it would have to, you know, go all the way down. And, you know, once that happened, you know, it would be game over. And that's what, that's what, you know, Michael Green has pointed out. That's also something Michael Green, you know, has pointed out. So, yep. Uh you know about Japan's uh, bubble in the 80s. What led to that? Why, why were the effects of it so bad that they had a lost decade after that? So, you know, Japan's an interesting example because um, I, think it was, I think, you know, Jeff Snyder was on your show and I remember, you know, a funny quote from him, you know, uh, if there's something the Federal Reserve is doing, you know, it's probably been tried and failed in Japan. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, so Japan basically saw, you know, credit go through the roof because they had these window lending policies where, you know, the government and the BOJ decided who to lend to, which industries to lend to. And um, the other thing was, you know, uh, Japan is an export-based economy, right? So they export a lot more than they import. And for Japan to be the, for Japan to be increased, you know, more profitable that way, um, Japan, so the Japanese yen would have to climb. And, you know, the lower the yen, the better it is for exporters, just generally speaking. So the BOJ, so the, so the Japanese yen was, you know, well, it was, it was rising. And, you know, the BOJ declared that, you know, they uh, stopping the yen's rise was a national priority. And, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, it stopped to, it's a, you know, whatever they tried did not stop the yen, but the yen eventually peaked, I think it was 1988, early 1988. And um, so the Plaza Accord, which is a, which was another event that happened in 1980, was to reduce the value of the US dollar relative to other currencies. And yeah, that was part of what led the yen to go up. And, um, and, so, and so the major thing that led to this bubble was, you know, window lending, extreme amount of credit. And, you know, uh, I remember, um, the, the value of real estate in Tokyo was more than the value of, you know, California uh, was more than the value of the state of California itself. Right. Yeah, or, you know, was sorry, like it was the Imperial palace. In yeah. Japan. The Imperial palace. Yep. And then, you know, Tokyo, I think the Tokyo real estate was you know, much, much higher, like several hundred times higher than, you know, price of real estate in Manhattan. And, you know, typically Manhattan is considered one of the most expensive places in the world to live. And, um, I think we saw some crazy you know, millions of dollars for golf memberships, right? So, so you know, and, and you know, the reason all this happened was there was an extreme amount of credit in the economy, and you know, this is sort of what is called a debt deleveraging or a debt deflation. And I think you know, uh, so what happened was you know, in a sense, there's three players in the economy. So you've got the corporates, you've got the households, and then you've got the government. And what happened during the 1990s was all three of them were deleveraging, and that sort of and so no one was actually, you know, well, no one was actually borrowing and spending. Everyone was deleveraging. So everyone was trying to get money to pay it back. And I know in an effort to save all these companies, what ended up happening was now what we call zombie companies. And um, so I think that's the major difference. So number one, we saw an extreme, you know, extreme uh, drastic amount of credit in the economy that lets, you know, all sorts of crazy things. And then after that, um, after that, uh, you know, we saw a massive deleveraging. And I think that's what Richard Ku was talking about in his book about Japan and, you know, in his concept, what he calls a balance sheet recession, right? So basically every, so he basically talks of those three participants, you know, you've got the households, you've got the corporates, and then you've got the government, you know, all three of them. 
they, they were busy paying off debt. And in that sense, no one was actually borrowing and spending. And, you know, that's sort of what led to that last decade. And, you know, uh, and, you know, Japan hasn't seen any sort of crazy inflation even after the last decade. So, um, and the other thing that, you know, what Stan Druckenmiller, I think, or maybe it was George Soros, I don't remember, one of the two, you know, they said they called the, the rate hike in um, 1990 or 1980 or 1989, uh, where the BOJ sharply raised uh, interbank, uh, you know, lending rates. Um, and he, I think one of them called it irresponsible. And I'd have to agree because, you know, it was number one, sudden. And number two, you know, this was like super bubbly. So you had to sort of, you know, slowly influenced market expectations before, you know, you just, uh, before randomly just raising rates. And, you know, we saw every, we saw pretty much all the asset values collapse. We saw everyone try to pay off the debt. We also saw these zombie companies that continued to exist, even though, you know, they had pretty much no reason to actually exist. So, yeah. So I think that's sort of, so that's sort of, so that's sort of what led to the last decade. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the, that the Japanese government's uh, fiscal austerity over the next decade was a mistake? Yeah, it would. Um, I think, I think well, again, it goes, it goes back to what Richard Ku was saying. Uh, you know, you should have the government, you know, expand its balance sheet while, the, you know, the household and corporate shrink theirs. And that's typically during a recession. But, uh, you know, fiscal austerity should not have happened. We should have had, we should have had you know, an increased amount of government spending. And uh, I think that, you know, that Japan was a special scenario where, you know, you pretty much had to go, I guess, all in on government spending. And, uh, you know, a lot of people tend to argue that, uh, you know, Japan is an example of a failure of Keynesian policies where, uh, you know, they try trillions of yen in stimulus and, you know, they still have trillions of yen in stimulus going for it, you know, every time, every single year after the 1990s. And we still haven't seen any, um, we still haven't seen any inflation or any growth and therefore Keynesianism does work. I would have to disagree. And, you know, as much as, you know, I gender in generally speaking, I dislike government intervention. Um, I think that, I think that, you know, the government should have, you know, participated a lot more in Japan. And I think the government policies as a whole, you know, what they did was wrong because, you know, for example, they could, I think there was a policy where, you know, companies postponed when uh, they recognized losses and, you know, this turned, uh, this turned those companies into, you know, zombie banks. And um, so, and so, you know, all these bailouts led to a lot of these zombie companies. So I think, you know, the government did the wrong thing as opposed to, you know, what they actually should have done. And, you know, and then the second thing that went wrong was, as I mentioned before, the BOJ's uh, decision in order to just randomly spike up rates and um, and not, uh, and not you know, give a warning in advance to the market. Mm-hmm. The U.S. faced a similar problem post-2008. And the American recovery was quite slow compared to previous um, post-recession recoveries. Do you think that, I mean, we, the U.S. hit um, employment population ratios pre-financial crisis only in 2016 or 17, if my memory serves right? Do you think that, that uh, the stimulus in, in 2009 was too small or was there a different reason for which the, the U.S. faced a similar problem of slow growth and despite uh, high QE and some uh, stimulus. So I think there were two things that happened. So number one, I think overall the banking system was not as you know, was not as good as it was before the recession. And the reason I say that is, for example, as the reason I say that is banks were overall a lot more scared to lend uh, because uh, first uh, because they saw sort of LIBOR and Fed funds decouple during the recession. I think it was August, 
2009, 2007, if I remember correctly, um, when LIBOR and Fed funds, you know, they decoupled from each other. And, you know, that's sort of what, um, that's sort of what a lot of these monetary economists and a lot of, and I've seen some hedge fund managers argue that, argue that, 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 is, that is one thing that, you know, has made banks a lot more cautious. We saw that during in March, 2020 as well, when, you know, LIBOR and Fed funds decoupled and, uh, you know, Fed funds is typically linked to, you know, LIBOR staying low, but they, you know, LIBOR spiked higher. And, um, so I think that's one reason. The second reason is I, I agree that, you know, we should have had a lot more stimulus. I think that, you know, sort of the potential GDP is, was, uh, was a lot lower than, I don't, I don't know what the, what the exact formula for this potential GDP on, you know, the FRED databases, but the potential GS, so the, so the difference or, you know, what you could do what, in a way you could call the output gap, you know, that, that, that was still not filled even with the amount of stimulus we saw. So I think that overall we should have, See, we should have seen more stimulus, and um, yeah, so that's 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 what I think should have happened after two thousand and eight. Now, the Biden administration is determined not to repeat that mistake, and they've had a pretty massive stimulus this time. Do you think that it's going to lead to sustained inflation, or the or the four percent, five percent we've been seeing now is because of temporary shortages? I think at the moment, you know, a lot of these inflation numbers are noisy because. You've got base effects, and you know, as you say, you've got supply shortages, and you know, you've also, uh, you know, you've also sort of had the reopening accelerate because you know now you see that you know the U.S. vaccination effort, you know, it's been really successful, and therefore a lot more people are able to go out, and you know, you're you're just seeing the economy return back to normal, and that is not sustainable fishing. You're just starting from you know, you're starting from a lower base, and you're just bringing it back to you know what the what the normal trend was, right? So, I think that. For us to start seeing, you know, where with quote unquote the real inflation figures is, you know, we'll probably see that, you know, maybe in the July or in the August numbers. So, and that's when, you're, you're, that's when, you know, sort of the noise starts to die down, and you know, the signal, the signal of those numbers, the value of the value of those numbers as you know a trading signal or as an investing signal goes higher. And um, so, uh, and you know, I would also argue that. Um, we might see, you know, say, you know, four to five percent inflation, and that's not that's not ridiculously high, but that is higher than what the Fed wants it because number one, the Fed wants these average inflation targeting policies, right? Because we saw that shift from keeping inflation at two percent into, uh, you know, keeping in keeping the average of inflation at two percent, and I don't think they've even stated like the period over which they want to keep it two percent. So you know, it could be, uh, it could be the next ten years, it could be the next forty years. You know, no one knows. So that's. That's sort of where that's sort of what uh, that's sort of what the risk is there. So number one, we've got a higher amount of fiscal policy, and so uh, you know that obviously runs the risk of having higher inflation, especially because you know they're just giving everything out as you know a stimulus check. So you know these people have the uh, ability to um, these people have the ability to go around, you know, with quote unquote free money, and then you know go around spending it, and uh, you know it may be spent on good things, it may not be spent on good things, and you know we saw durable good sales go through the roof, for example, and I think that is what uh, you know that is what the major and that uh, that is what the major risk is. So number one, excessive fiscal policy. Number two, is it used productively? Maybe, maybe not. You know that's that's something that that is very debatable. You know. Of course, there's an infrastructure bill that's coming, but you know most of this money has gone out as stimulus checks, and you know people are getting, you know, what they call stimmies, and uh, you know that's 
that's sort of what uh, that's sort of what the risk is there. So I think there is a chance that we see sustained inflation, but I don't think there's any chance we see a hyperinflation. I think that there's a the but that yeah, but I do think that you know you have to keep your mind open and you have to be able to see things a lot more you know, objectively and ensure that you're actually acting on the signals as they are, as opposed uh, to yeah, noisy data. Yep. Uh, what's your dream job like? I guess my dream job would be to be a full-time investor and uh, be a full-time hedge fund manager. Uh, that's sort of what that's sort of what I like to do. Uh, pretty much on a daily basis, uh, you know, just sit down, read all day, read about anything and everything. You know, read the news and then you know, read about stocks in this country and that country, and then you know, read annual reports, see if there's any opportunities outside of stocks that are you know that's potential that's possible for me to take and you know that's that's sort of what my dream job is okay if you could have dinner with any one investor uh living or dead who would that be it's a good question i probably uh, i'd probably have to go with either you know george soros or stan Druckenmiller, uh because i really like you know their investment styles um, and, uh, you know, in general, I think that, you know, they both are, you know, some of the greatest investors the world has ever seen. And, um, the way they're able to analyze, you know, investment opportunities and also the way, you know, they have the, uh, I guess the balls to go for, uh, you know, the juggler when the opportunity presents itself, I think that's amazing. So those would be so that would be my number one choice. And then after that, I guess I'll probably also speak to people like David Einhorn or Blackman or Jim Chanos or, um, yeah. So that's, 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 that's what I would do. How about you? Me? Um, I'd probably speak to Mark Sellers. He ran a hedge fund up till 2007, uh, went, went on to one stock in 2008, was, was up some 80-90% in the first half. And in the second half, he was down 80-90% again. He quit and probably done some tiny bistro in the US. But uh, he wrote the book, he wrote the speech, So You Want to Be Like Warren Buffett. Uh, which which talks about how nobody ever is is is, is going to earn at least it's st- st- it is impossible statistically to earn returns like Buffett and what sort of um what sort of characteristics you have to have to become like that. So he seems like an interesting guy, and I really really want to meet him someday. But he's untraceable on the internet. Probably changed his name too. <laughs> so okay, yeah. Uh, finally, where, yeah, where should ambitious people go? Well, they should go and listen to my podcast. <laughs> okay, that's a, okay. a that's a that's a good enough answer. Better than most people I've seen who say um, they should they should go work in tech or they should they should go to China or whatever. Okay, fine. Yep. Uh, thank you for being on it. Thanks and I hope me. our I fun. hope our Had listeners fun. like it. Yes, yes. Thank you. Um,